Today's reading is from Romans 6, verse 15 to Romans 7, verse 6. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit of, for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Thank you, Chris. Well, friends, if you've got... Romans 6 and 7 open, please keep it that way. And if you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to, to have that open in front of you as we work through this really rich, um, uh, complex passage together. As we do, I wonder if the gospel of Jesus Christ has ever struck you as being a scandal. It should. It is a scandal that evil people can be forgiven through faith in Jesus. We see it in the pages of the Bible, like the, the scandal of the corrupt public official Zacchaeus being forgiven despite years of theft and the abuse of power. Or the scandal of the thief on the cross beside Jesus, despite his involvement in violent crime being granted forgiveness in his, his dying moments. In fact, it's the scandal that the Apostle Paul himself knew that even he could be forgiven, a man who had persecuted Christians, even overseeing their, their torture and their murder, that even Paul could be forgiven. The gospel is a scandal. 
It's the scandal that even a man like Combray Douche, who ran a notorious prison in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge and was personally responsible for the deaths of 14,000 people under horrific circumstances, can be forgiven. While hiding after his atrocities, he came to faith in Jesus. And when he died serving his life sentence in prison, just recently, a couple of years ago in 2020, he died as our brother in Christ. It is the scandal of the gospel that today murderers and pedophiles and war criminals can all find forgiveness by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And as Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, I think he knew this. This is pretty confronting. It's incredible news, but actually, as his readers opened this letter and kind of unpacked it, they would be confronted, perhaps even offended by the gospel. But I think he saw that there was layer upon layer of that, right? Because it's one thing for people to be forgiven, but then what's expected of them? Paul's been unpacking the significance of a relationship with God that is only by his grace, and all we do is trust his promises, receive his promises by faith. We're no longer condemned under God's law that highlighted our sinful behaviour. But the question stands, well, what does that mean? Does that mean we've lost any sense of what sin is? If God doesn't judge us guilty by the law because he's declared us righteous by faith, does that mean that it's just a free-for-all? Do what you want. That would be a whole other layer of scandal. For Christians in the first century living in Rome seeing all kinds of debauchery and cruelty around them, constantly facing temptation to go with the flow, does this just make a mockery of their desire to please God? I was thinking of this in Aussie terms. I think we start to get a picture of what the Christians in Rome might have been wrestling with. If we were to say, wow, if sinners are now off the hook for their sin, does that mean that their sinful nature is now off the leash? If we're off the hook for our sin, we've been forgiven. Does that mean our sinful nature is just off the leash? It's, what's the point in trying to live a godly life? Just, just join in. Well, in Romans chapter 6, Paul tackles two questions that really highlight this scandal. Last week, Matt helped us wrestle with the first of these questions. Paul said, shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? I mean, if, if God's going to forgive, let's just keep sinning so that we can see how gracious and forgiving God is. I think it's a pretty natural conclusion. I've had conversations at the pub with friends who are pretty confident that they were just fine without becoming a Christian because it's God's job to forgive. If he's a forgiving God, then they don't really need to change anything because he'll forgive them anyway. And we unpacked Paul's answer last week. Shall we keep on sinning so that grace might increase? Well, No, not at all. We have a new life in Jesus. So let's live it. And if you missed Matt's sermon last week, grab it off the webcast or the podcast uh, to catch up with it. But this week we've got a second question that came up in the opening words as Chris read for us. Paul anticipated his friends asking another question. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? You see, I think it's the question that would have scandalised the religious mindset. That the things that... The, the way that we change as human beings, the way that we change human behaviour, the way that we restrain evil, it's through law, it's through rules. And let's be honest, you don't have to be part of a conservative Christian community to start to think that way. 
You'll even see it in secular Australia. What's the basic assumption? Just think about things that you've seen in the news, things that you've seen debated. The knee-jerk reaction to bad behaviour is to introduce more rules. If we have a problem with dangerous driving, well, then we need to increase the penalties for drink driving, and we probably need some new rules for all of that driving under the influence of other drugs that people have started doing. If we have a problem with tax evasion, then we need to tighten the loopholes. We've got new technologies. They'll need new legislation. Friends, I think it's the same mindset that Paul is tackling here. That the way to change human behaviour is through the law, and if you take the law away, imagine the chaos. Well, Paul's answer is just as blunt and clear. Shall we sin because we're not under law? By no means. But what we're going to see, what we've already read, is that it's not because God is standing there with a great big stick that he's about to whack us with if we keep on sinning. Paul says, no, I want to show you three very different illustrations to instill a very different mindset. That if we're living a new life of grace that we saw in that first half of Romans chapter 6 last week, then this question is just a non-starter because we've been shown the incredible freedom of grace. So we've got three illustrations, which gives the preacher three helpful points to reflect on. We're going to dive on in. The first one comes from everyday life for people who lived in the city of Rome in the first century, slavery. Of course, we're thinking, well, that's not very everyday life for me. But the Roman Empire ran on slavery. It's estimated that in the first century AD, about two-thirds, two out of every three people living in Rome were slaves. So it's likely that in the churches in Rome, roughly two out of every three Christians in Rome were slaves themselves, and the other third almost certainly owned slaves. Now, to be really clear, Paul is not condoning the institution of slavery here. He's just drawing an analogy from something so day-to-day familiar for them. And while some of those slaves became slaves through really brutal means, taken from their homelands as the prize of war, most slaves in Rome were slaves by means of a sort of a form of social welfare, a means of escaping poverty by offering themselves in the service of a more wealthy household. And I think it's pretty clear that this is the main category that Paul's got in mind as he um, uses this illustration. He admits in verse 19 that it's not a perfect analogy, but, but he uses it because it makes his point. In verse 16, as we kicked off, he said, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? And we might go, well, no, I don't know, because I don't know much about slavery. But his readers in Rome, they're going, oh, yeah, of course. You offer yourself to someone as a slave, then you are their slave. You've given up your freedom. You can't just wander off and do whatever you like tomorrow. And if your new master says that they want you to clean the toilets, then that's what you'll do. Because you've offered your obedience as their slave. You've you've made themselves your slave. That's just how it worked in Rome. And then the analogy Paul applies to sin, as verse 16 continues, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. This is the kind of the connection that Paul is making. When someone chooses sin, they have made themselves a slave to sin. They've given over their freedom to wander off. They can't just choose to go and do something different tomorrow. If they've said that to sin, they've said that sin, if sin wants them to get down in the gutter, then well, that's what they'll do. 
And Paul makes it as a statement, a summary statement of the fundamental problem of the human heart, that all of us descended from Adam, we're all slaves to sin. Which if we've walked the journey of the last few weeks in Romans, we've heard before, but perhaps you're sitting here this morning, this is heavy going and a big claim. Well, Paul said as much a couple of chapters earlier in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 9, We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. All alike, we are slaves of sin. And I think it's good to be upfront that that's pretty confronting to our modern mindset that loves to claim our freedoms. But the basic perspective that the Bible gives us is that left to our own devices, we are not actually free. As sinners, we don't have the freedom to simply... Stop deciding to be sinners, to say no to sin. However hard we try, we can't, just can't stop ourselves from sinning. We are slaves to sin. My wife and I were making homemade pizza last night, opened up the can of pineapple and had it on the bench there, and, and our four-year-old son is sort of looking at it. We said, don't touch it, the edges are very sharp. So he reached out to touch it. Now, it might all sound pretty ridiculous to talk about us as being slaves to sin if we only think of sin in the big categories of terrible things like murder and theft. I mean, you and I make choices all of the time not to do those sorts of things. No, I will not murder that person at work who's really annoying me. Pretty straightforward decision right there. Yes, I will pay for that chocolate bar that I'd like to eat. I will choose not to sin. I'll pay for it. We, we, we make decisions all the time not to sin. You think, what are you, what's this guy talking about? It's actually helpful to see that here Paul is not just thinking in the category of sins, the individual wrong deeds. Paul says we are slaves to sin, the underlying heart attitude. Sin is the attitude that displaces God from the centre of our world and puts other things in his place, other people that we want to please, other means to our security and our comfort and our hope. To use Bible categories, sin is misplaced worship. To displace the worship of God at the centre of our lives with the worship of other things, including ourselves. And I think at that point we start to see the truth of what Paul says here. That humanity is indeed enslaved to sin. Going through life, constantly giving ourselves over to the worship of ourselves in one way or another. Actually, incapable of removing ourselves from the centre of our worship. Such that even the good things we do are tainted by that reality that we've put ourselves at the centre, we've put ourselves on the throne, there's always a degree of self-worship lurking behind even the most charitable act. Otherwise, charities wouldn't have to tell you that any donations to them were tax-deductible because we're looking for the discount. We're slaves to sin. But, verse 17 and 18... Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've now been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is the hope of the gospel, that you've been set free from sin. There is an alternative to being slaves to sin. And it comes about through a transfer of allegiance comes about 
through being entrusted to a pattern of teaching, the teaching of the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has not only made it possible for us to be forgiven for past sin, but even more than that, to use this image, he's, he's broken us out of the prison of our slavery. He's done what we could never do. And if Jane had better quality toilet paper, Anya wouldn't have been able to do either. Uh, Jesus has, has broken the shackles of our bondage. You see, he didn't just cut us loose, though, and let us loose. Did you see how Paul carried the illustration forward? You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This would have been so familiar for his Roman friends, describing a slave who has now had a transfer of allegiance. They have been redeemed. They have been purchased from one master to serve a new master. Paul says we no longer have an obligation to sin, but an allegiance to righteousness as slaves of God. Now, that's the first illustration that Paul gives, and he moves on. But before we move on, I want to help us to see a really profound and practical implication of this first point. The question was, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? The answer is by no means, because you have a new master. You are no longer slaves of sin. Uh, the paragraph before we picked up today, verse 14, reads, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. And for all of the kind of difficult social categories of what do we do with slavery and imagine a world you know, 2,000 years ago, this is really good news. This is really practical. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you can now say no to sin. This is part of the promise of the gospel to be received by faith. Part of the promise that, that says Jesus has forgiven us our sins and freed us from them. We are not slaves to sin Unlike our life before Jesus, we can say no to sin and it impacts everything. And think of the things that just seem to well up within you, almost beyond your control. Those times when I feel my buttons being pushed and the anger is rising in me, the adrenaline has cranked up my heart rate and the outburst just feels so inevitable. But I can actually say no. No, in my anger, I will not sin. I'm not forced by some primitive reflex to an outburst of rage. But actually, even deeper than that, I'm not compelled by my sinful nature to think sinfully, resentfully, hurtfully about this person or about this situation. We have the freedom to say no to sin. To illustrate this even more graphically, uh, a few years ago, I was searching, uh, serving rather on the pastoral team at Trinity Church Adelaide, working with a lot of young adults. And through that time, it became apparent to me just how enslaved... So many of, in particular, the young men were by the burden of, of the temptation and the sin of pornography. It was evident just how powerless they felt in the face of this temptation, that in this internet age, it is only ever just a click away, that it seemed to have some kind of irresistible hold on them and it felt to them like pornography had become this addiction that left them totally powerless to say no. And so it was profoundly transformative for these young Christian men to hear again the power of the gospel. That by God's grace, united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, his story being their story, they are no longer slaves to sin. Sin shall not be your master because you're under grace. It's a promise with an implicit call 
to act based on our faith. To trust that we can say no. Yes, it's still a struggle. You know, even if the war has been won, the battle still rages, as the cliche says. And we will come to that in more detail next week. But for now, let me say to you that if you feel bound up in the ongoing temptation of sin that you wish you'd been able to put aside long ago, if you are in Christ Jesus, you can say no. And if you're not a Christian, but you're beginning to see just how desperately you want to be set free from that old way of life, then it begins with his offer of grace. And we'd love to talk more with you about that. So you've got opportunity to explore that and reflect on that and respond to that. So the question was blunt, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means, no way. In Christ, we've been set free from sin and we become slaves to righteousness. That was the first of Paul's illustrations we're going to look at the next two much, much more briefly. Because in verse 19 uh, through to 23, Paul actually uses the illustration of a fruitful harvest to show just how radically this new life is from the old. Verse 19, he writes, Just as you used to offer yourselves to slaves, as uh, slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. You see, it's, it's an instruction. This is the choice for those who would be united with Jesus through faith in his death and resurrection. God reaches out to us, so we have a choice to make. But continue in the old way, offering ourselves as slaves to sin, or walk in the new way, offering ourselves as slaves to righteousness. And at this point, Paul draws on the very simple logic of consequence. Or we might say he just uses the logic of, you idiot. What a dumb question. When you consider the outcome, verse 21, what, what benefit did you reap at that time? Literally, he says, what was the fruit from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. You benefit, uh, sorry, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. Literally, you have the fruit of holiness and the result is eternal life. So yes, you could choose sin, but looking at the consequence, you'd be an idiot because that master leads to death. It is the horror of slavery to an abusive, controlling master that the citizens of Rome knew all too well. You'd be an idiot to choose that when you've got the freedom to make a very different choice, to live for a very different master as a slave of God, bearing the fruit of holiness with the destination of eternal life. And that helps us to see that this is a slavery of a totally different kind. He's still using that category that was familiar to them, the world that they lived in. But this is, this is something that is all about life and light and goodness and provision and care. So the first illustration, you've been set free from an old master, transferred to a new one. It's not just old and new, it's radically different. It's the choice between oppression and death and fruitfulness and life. And once again, it's a choice that reflects faith in action. Because you have to trust the promise of the gospel of those consequences that are on view. At the point of temptation, to trust that our new master is a truly good master to serve. 
or just in case we forget where we've come from, we start to think that actually maybe, maybe my new master requires me to serve him so that I enjoy the blessings of where he's come, uh, what he's offering. Paul actually reminds us again of the grace of God that makes all of this possible. Verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. That's the old way of the law. It's a legal debt that you cannot pay. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's by his grace, through faith. And then in the final illustration, Paul shows us that this is all about relationship. I've got on quite well with bosses at different points over the years. Uh, some of them have been hard to work with and you just kind of put up with it. Others, genuinely wonderful people to work for and alongside. But Paul actually shifts it from the metaphor of master to the metaphor of marriage. I was at a bloke's Bible study earlier uh, in the week and we were looking at this passage and I says, you have the right to remain silent, but whatever you do say can and may be used as an illustration in the sermon. And one of them dropped the joke when we got to this point. It's like, what's Paul doing comparing marriage to slavery? This seems outrageous. Um, we were all married men in the room. There was an abstainer as the rest of us chuckled in laughter and he wanted it to be noted that he hadn't laughed at such a disrespectful joke. <laughs> but actually what Paul does here is Paul takes us back to relationship, showing that our new life is possible because... It is all through relationship with Christ Jesus, our Lord. In this first paragraph of chapter 7, it feels like a complex illustration. He's talking about death, bringing marriage to an end, freeing the widow to marry again. But it's actually a very simple concept, really, that, that if our old selves died with Jesus in his death on the cross, you can podcast that from last week, his death on the cross deals with our condemnation under law. And we are freed from that old relationship bound to the master of sin by the law. We are freed for a new relationship in the new way of the spirit, as Paul summed it up in verse 6 of chapter 7. And so the basic concept that we now have a new master that takes on even more kind of vivid, life-giving colour, this is a relationship with the one who loves us so much that he would sacrifice everything for our well-being, even his own son. This is the master who is so determined to bless us, he doesn't just invite us to join his household, he moves in with us. That's what he's doing with this talk about the Holy Spirit, God's presence with us, setting up his house in our hearts so that he might live where he can bless us most, right at the centre of our lives. So we sin because we're not under law? No. We're set free to serve a new master. We have a harvest of death or a harvest of life. A simple choice to make. But more than anything, we have a new relationship as a part of the family. Now, as I've reflected on this uh, in this recent weeks, I think this is more than just three helpful illustrations. What we've got here is actually a really practical checklist to consider when we face the question that Paul wrestled with. Because you will face it again and again. Shall I sin? There will be moments of decision around big, obvious sin. Is it the simmering temptation of the affair at work? Or is it the impulsive click through to the pornography site? Is it the decision about whether to oh, fudge the 
details on my tax return. There is the easy opportunity to throw a colleague under the bus for the mistake that you should really be taking responsibility for. There will be those moments that are big moments of decision. Yes or no? And we ask ourselves, shall I sin? Because after all, it's God's job to forgive. By no means. But it struck me it's not just for those moments of big obvious sin. Because I think there are countless subtle times when we find ourselves caught up in the way that our minds and our bodies work and yet we have the decision to make about where we will go with that. In our anger that wells up, will we turn to resentment? In that hurt that we didn't choose but it's just bubbling away, will we seek revenge? In our anxiety that just seems so beyond my control... Will I despair? Shall I sin because I'm no longer under law but under grace? Three reasons, no. Because I know my new master who set me free to say no to the old way. No, because I know that the road of sin leads to destruction but my Lord promises a wonderful future. No, because my new master has brought me into his household with the wonderful familiarity and intimacy of dearly loved family. I want to live with him and for him. And even as I've wrestled with this question myself in, in, in recent weeks and just thinking it through in the, in, the, in the context of my own life, I know how I want to answer the question, right? Shall we sin because we're no longer under law but under grace? By no means. I don't even want to. Now, as I finish up, to be clear, that doesn't mean it's a walk in the park. It doesn't mean it's instant transformation. And if you're sitting here feeling like you get it wrong more often than you get it right, it doesn't mean you need to question your salvation. We're going to grapple with all of that next week and in the weeks to come. But for now, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel of Jesus is scandalous. We could never come up with it ourselves uh, to think that we could simply be declared righteous because we've received your gift of grace. Father, that, that actually you would be so powerfully at work that you would free us from the old way, enable sinful people to say no to sin and then gradually draw us into a life that reflects the family that you've already made us a part of. Father, we thank you that you've included us in that. We thank you that you continue with us in that. We thank you that you have given us a wonderful future ahead in light of that. And so we pray that you would help us to see and to hear the really stark portrayal here of the choice that lies before us. And help us to choose it, not because we fear a big stick of the old law, but because we know the warm embrace of your love and your mercy and your grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.